Lord's coming back, amen? You say, how do you know that? Because God's Word says so. And he's, He tells the truth, amen? The Word of God is true. Well, we're excited about the fact that He's coming back for us. He hasn't left us here and without the Comforter. And then when He does decide it's time to take the Comforter out, we'll be going with Him. And that's exciting. Well, listen, let's go ahead and take our Bibles today. Turn over to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. We're going to begin a series, A Mind to Work for the Faith. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But we're going to read this particular passage. We're going to set the stage just a little bit. And then we're going to continue to move along here this morning and uh, get into the series. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we move along. Of course, A Mind to Work is our theme for the year. And uh, I'm excited about it. And uh, we've got a lot of work to do, so we better have a mind to work. And so, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, again, our theme verse for the year. The Bible tells us, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. Now, the book of Nehemiah is what is often referred to, at least galactically speaking, as a post-exilic book. You say, what's that mean? It means after the exile. That's all it really means. So what we do is we have the Mystical Scholars Union, the MSU, trying to confuse people. So we use big terms because, let's face it, like doctors, you have to use big words or you wouldn't be needed, right? (laughs) You just said it in layman's language. So even Bible colleges have a tendency, if they're not careful, to kind of come up with these big words, you know, try to impress people nothing impressive about this at all. It's very simple. Nehemiah is a book that deals with after the exile or after the Babylonian captivity. And so the children of Israel go into Babylonian captivity in 606 B.C. That's before Christ. Now, don't let this confuse you because as we start talking about numbers now before Christ, everything moves in a different direction than it does now. For instance, after Christ, if it's 1 A.D. and then you want to go 10 years into the future... It's 10 A.D., right, or 11 A.D. But in the Old Testament, as we're before Christ, you want to go 10 years into the future, the number actually drops. So it would be like 400 B.C., 10 years into the future from that day, makes it 390. So don't let that confuse you, okay? I know it's confusing to me sometimes as I'm trying to figure out the time frame and the numbers. But the Babylonian captivity started in 606 B.C. with uh, the, the first group being exported out of Jerusalem. That wouldn't be completed till 586 uh, B.C. actually. Uh, you know. But nonetheless, we have here 606 to 536. So what we find is a 70-year captivity, Babylonian captivity. Now... The Bible prophesied that there would be captivity. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah makes it clear that it will be 70 years even. And so the Babylonian captivity is when, of course, the children of Israel are taken from their homeland, placed into Babylon. And we read about the uh, men like Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible talks about how those young men, him and his three buddies, were carried away. They were taken, of course, to Babylon, and there they were there to serve the king of Babylon, so forth, so on. So Daniel takes place at the beginning of this captivity. If you're reading the book of Daniel, you're reading about an event taking place during the 70-year captivity in Babylon. 
Okay, so we then have the rebuilding of the temple. After that 70 years, there's a decree by Cyrus to rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians when they came in. They ruined it. They wrecked it. They destroyed it. They had no regard whatsoever for the God of Israel, no regard for the people of God. They just destroyed the temple along with the people, along with the city, and of course along with the nation in a sense. So nonetheless, they, they, the decree comes from Cyrus now, another Medo-Persian king, and he, uh, Media king, and uh, he turns around and he, uh, uh, Persian king, excuse me, and he sends them out and says, fine, go ahead and rebuild the temple. And so Zerubbabel takes a group of people and ultimately Ezra shows up over there and they rebuild the temple between 536, 516, 20 years in building. It's finally completed. So we have a 70 year captivity. Following the 70 year captivity, we have a rebuilding of the temple walls in Jerusalem, or the temple in Jerusalem by Zerubbabel and of course Ezra there. Now, after that, a number of years later, about 80 years later or so, or a number of years later, we have the rebuilding of the wall now. We come to, we come to Nehemiah, this particular book. Again, it's after the exile. It's after the captivity. And we have Nehemiah now, the cupbearer, before the king. And ultimately, he's going to go ahead and, and request an opportunity to go back to his homeland, to go back to his people, and to begin to rebuild the walls around the city. Remember, they've already built the, the, the temple. They've already put it in place. But now he's saying, man, we've got a problem. The walls are destroyed. We've got a problem. The city is defenseless. We need to defend the city. We need to put it in a place where it's safe, where people can actually raise a family where people can actually live a life. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and there begins to rebuild the walls. And in 445 BC, that project takes place. And 52 days later, the walls are completed. Now, this rebuilding would come with tremendous opposition. Just because he made up his mind to go, God had made it clear to him what he needed to accomplish, and he takes his, his uh, journey there to Jerusalem, and, and God was with him, the king was on his side. I mean, everything was going the right way. The problem was, is that there were some that didn't like the idea. Matter of fact, we read about it. If you're in the book of Nehemiah still, take your Bible, look at chapter 2, verse 10. We're going to take some, a few minutes and just look at this as, as we set the stage a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to know that the enemy hated that somebody cared. And the enemy still hates when somebody cares. Do you know what the easiest thing... Can I just say this? And I hope I don't offend anybody. I hope I don't, you know, stick a knife in your back or anything like that. But let me just say this. The easiest thing for a Christian to do, in my opinion, is to say these words. I will pray for you. That's easy. That's the, that's the answer, right? That's it. Oh, somebody's having a rough time. I will pray for you. We're praying for you. Wow, isn't that comforting? Now listen to me. It is comforting to know people are praying for you, but I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes, sometimes, it's a little bit more impressive if you actually care. So I said, well, I don't have enough money as it is to share it with others. And I don't have enough things as it is to share with others. And I don't have enough time as it is to share with others. And I don't have enough... Uh, 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 uh. You know all the excuses. But you know what the enemy really hates? Somebody that actually cares. Not just, not just offers to pray, but actually does pray. And not just prays, but ultimately obeys God and does something about it when they're given opportunity. 
Nehemiah wasn't just praying about some things. Nehemiah found out what God wanted him to do, and he did something about it. Let me tell you something. If you know somebody that's struggling financially, and they're actually serving the Lord, and they're actually putting forth the effort that God would have them to put forth, maybe we ought to put some groceries in there on their shelves and in their refrigerators, other than just telling them we'll pray for them. You know, maybe we ought to actually take steps to encourage them, to help them. Maybe we ought to maybe buy them that coat that they need or buy them a new pair of shoes that looks like it's worn out or actually take steps to do something that would make a difference and prove that we care, not just say that we do. Maybe we need to help disciple somebody in the Lord, spend a little bit of time with them, take them under our wing, go ahead and just receive them unto ourselves, invite them in our home for dinner, and go ahead and maybe help them understand how we give and how we go and what we do and why we do it instead of just going, I'll pray for you. Someone says, I think prayer is the most powerful thing in the world. It might be, but it isn't very powerful when there's no feet to prayers. Nehemiah, he put some feet to his prayers, I'll guarantee you. And when he got there, the enemy wasn't happy. Why? Not because he prayed about it. They weren't happy because somebody actually cared enough to go there and do something about it. The enemy laughed and despised their efforts even once things got moving. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 18 and 19, just a few verses down. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horite, Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? I mean, they were not happy. They, they were upset. I mean, they were very angry at the fact that things were moving forward. They, as a matter of fact, they laughed at them. They despised them, it says. The anger intensifies, of course. It gets worse. The indignation begins to grow as things move forward. The enemy seeks even to enlist the help of another army a little later on. Even discouragement becomes a tactic that they try to employ. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, I mean, they're making progress now. Things are starting to happen here. He was wroth. And took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the armies of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which were burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. And he said, Even that which they build. If a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. I mean, he's just trying, he's speaking discouraging words. Okay, so whatever, they're putting forth effort. So what, we're seeing some things uh, taking place, but they're not even close to getting it accomplished. They're never going to get it done. It's not going to really take full shape and full form. Don't worry about it, guys. It's okay. I guarantee you those words got back to the people of God and trying to discourage them and saying, oh, it's more work than you guys can even imagine. Sure, you've gotten a good start. Sure, you're starting to make some progress. But listen, you're a long ways from finishing the job. Anybody ever try to tell you those things? Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 now. The enemy is furious now at this point. They're even getting more upset, more angry than ever. I mean, the walls are almost completed. And they conspire with those others to actually fight against and to destroy the people and their city. Nehemiah 4, verse 7 through 12. It came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. They weren't just wroth anymore. They weren't just angry. They were very angry. They were very wroth now. And conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. 
Nevertheless was made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens decayed and uh, there is much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversary said, they shall not know neither see till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. Came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, from all places when she shall return unto us, they will be upon us. They just kept hearing over and over and over and over again these discouraging words. Worried that the enemy was going to come upon them. Worried that they were going to overtake them. Worried that they were going to defeat them, their families, that were going to wreck and ruin their homes. The progress, of course, continues despite the threat of the battle. These were some men and women, boys and girls, with some real determination. Being desperate, and they were unable to scare Nehemiah and the people. They weren't able to intimidate them to seizing from the work. Sanballat and Geshem try to, uh, uh, Geshem try to ambush Nehemiah himself. So they ask him four times to meet with him. Every time, the real goal is to destroy him, to kill him. Because what they figured out was this, is that there was a man of God in that town. There was a man of God who had a vision of God and a purpose of God, and he was leading the people of God. If we can only get rid of Nehemiah, we can wreck and ruin the whole project. You know, i got to believe that there's good reason to believe that. And many times a good, a good leader is absolutely, without doubt, required. You have to have good leadership. That's important. However, I'll say this much. I think that project was much bigger than one man. And I believe that even if something would have happened to Nehemiah, somebody else would have been raised up by God to accomplish the job and finish it anyway. But nonetheless, they understood the need for good leadership, godly leadership. And they thought, if we can just get rid of Nehemiah. Despite their constant threats and opposition, however, the wall was rebuilt. 52 days later, you say, 52 days? All of this transpires in 52 days? Yes, it was amazing, isn't it? From the time they started to the time they finished, 52 days. And that's, that's exactly, exactly, exactly what Brother Steve Cavanaugh says it'll take to build our building. Oh, there he is right there. Right, Brother Steve? <laughs> he says, yeah, exactly, right. It might take a few days longer. But 52 days, hence the text. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together into the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to work. They were going to let nothing stand in their way of accomplishing their God-given purpose. Over the next year, we're going to consider that theme, a mind to work. The theme is going to be addressed in three sections throughout this year. One, a mind to work for the faith. Number two, a mind to work for the family. And number three, a mind to work for the future. Those are the three areas we're going to consider this theme in, 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 re- in relationship to. And this morning we're going to begin that theme, a mind to work for the faith. And we're going to consider over the next few weeks in that series, these three thoughts. Elements of the faith, enemies of the faith, and execution of the faith. And today, we want to begin with elements of the faith. We want to start right there. 
Take your Bible, if you would, look over the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 3, please. Jude's all the way at the end of the Bible. You go to Revelation, go backwards just a little bit. The next would just go right backwards out of Revelation. You'll run right smack dab into it. It's really right there. Get Revelation. Revelation, Jude. Going backwards now. There it is, Jude. I want to look at verse 3, if you would, please, as we kick off this thought, a mind to work for the faith, elements of the faith. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your blessed word. We ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts through it. Encourage us in these next few moments. May you be lifted up, elevated, and exalted. You're so worthy of it. Lord, may you humble my heart, and may you enable me, Lord, to be filled with your spirit. Give me opportunity to make a difference in lives as you fill me with your spirit and put your words in my mouth. May I just simply be your mouthpiece today. We'll thank you and praise you. Now, Father, be with every listening ear. May we hear with spiritual ears today. May we not be distracted by our busy schedules or by just the, the sheer act of someone beside us not paying attention. Father, may we not be moving about and allowing the devil to use us as a distraction. Help us, Lord, we pray. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, as we read this, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. That word contend. Its root meaning has to do with strive or to strive against, to struggle in opposition. As it's used here in the book of Jude, it means to strive to use earnest effort to obtain, to defend and preserve, to defend and preserve. So the implication is that the faith requires a constant amount of effort to be exercised in order to ensure its existence. If we want the faith to continue, if we want to preserve the faith, then it's going to demand, require, that we put forth great effort and strive and contend. So we must strive to obtain. We must strive to defend and to preserve. And before we can do that, we need to understand what it is. I mean, what is the faith? So today I want to talk about elements of the faith. We're going to talk about three basic elements. And I know we could be much more detailed. This could get much more um, um, involved. I want to keep it as simple as I possibly can today for my sake, not yours. And I want to look at just a couple of things now about this faith. And I want to identify three elements of the faith. First of all, you have the faith that the faith is a person. We're elements. It's a person. The faith is a person. Someone said, well, who's the person? You probably know already. It's Jesus Christ. I was reading from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He puts it this way, and I'm just going to read what he says because he does say it much more eloquently than I could. Our faith is a person, he says. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may, we have something solid and tangible to preach. If you had asked the 12 apostles in their day, what do you believe in? 
They would not have needed to go around about with a long reply, but they would have pointed to their master. They would have said, we believe him. But what, have your, what are your doctrines? Well, there they stand, incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He's our example. Well, what then do you believe? Well, hear ye the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul when he says, We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ Jesus. The Apostle preached doctrine, but the doctrine was Christ. He preached practice, but the practice was all in Christ. There is no summary of the faith of a Christian that can compass all he believes except that word, Christ. And that is the Alpha and the Omega of our creed. That is the first and the last rule of our practice. Christ and Him crucified. To spread the faith then is to spread the knowledge of Christ crucified. It is in fact to bring men through the agency of God's Spirit to feel their need of Christ. To seek Christ. To believe in Christ. To love Christ. And then to live for Christ. The temptation is to equate the faith with a set of rules or lifestyle. What we just skipped. You thought that Spurgeon was speaking there. I just wrote that. It's pretty good, huh? I, I, I forgot the quotes. I just ran past the quote. So anyway, he stops and says, then we live for Christ. I put, okay, the temptation is to equate the faith with a set of rules or lifestyle. Often that's what we believe the faith is. If I maintain this set of rules, if I continue in these responsibilities, if I go here and do this and do that, then I have the faith. I'm accomplishing the faith. But listen, that's not the faith. The faith is a person. Lifestyle and rules are part of the life of faith, but, the, but faith itself is Christ. It's a person. Take your Bible, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. When we contend for the faith, we're really contending for a person, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have to defend the Lord and His reputation in that sense. But let me tell you something. I need to make sure that Christ is in a public place. That Christ's name is being exalted and magnified in the culture and the society in which I live. I'm to contend for the faith. I'm to go ahead and strive and to work and to, and to, to do all I can to preserve that faith. To, to maintain that faith. To keep that faith alive in this place in which we live. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice very carefully and very easily, very quickly here, it says here that He's given us eternal life. Yes, but this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You know what? Without the Son you have no faith. He is the faith. You must have Him to have life. Faith, it's all part of one big bucket. You just take it. You get it. You receive Christ. You have the faith. Because you have Him. You say, well, I I believe in in maintaining a, a good character. And I believe in doing things the right way. And I believe in giving as I ought to give. Those are all wonderful things. But those aren't things that get you life. Those aren't the things that are really the faith in and of themselves. It is a person. Everything else exudes from it. Everything else is a manifestation of Him. As we'll see here in just a moment. 
John chapter 1 verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. The gospel, the faith, it's all about Christ. It's Him. He is the gospel. Remember we said when, when uh, um, let's see, um, i got to think of His name now. Uh, the priest there, Jesus, is, comes to Simeon. Simeon? Yes. My mind, I'm not on that story right now. But Simeon, Simeon holds Christ in his hands. He saw the consolation of Israel. He held the consolation of Israel in his hands. He held Messiah in his hand. You know, he said, I've seen thy salvation. I've seen thy salvation. I've seen thy salvation. What he's saying is, I've seen thy salvation. Here he is. He is salvation. He is the faith. Without Christ, there is no faith. There is no salvation. I don't care how often you go to church. Doesn't matter how often you pray. Doesn't matter how much you give. That is not the faith in and of itself. That is a manifestation of your faith. But it is not the faith. Christ is the faith. So we see, first of all, elements of the faith. It's a person, Jesus Christ. It's a perspective. It's a perspective. The faith is a perspective. See, the faith that we hold near and dear to our hearts is rooted in one thing, the Word of God. Do you know what the Word of God is according to John chapter 1? Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Him. He is the Word of God. Every time you pick the Word of God up, you're picking up Christ. Within the pages of this blessed book, we are reminded, always reminded of the stark difference, the massive difference between the outlook and the attitude that the world has toward morality, money, misery, mankind, marriage, the mission of life, the methodologies that they institute. We are forever reminded of how vastly different their, folk, their attitude is, their perspective is in those areas compared to ours. But you have to pick this book up first because this is the mind of Christ. And as we take this book, we get the perspective of God. It's the faith wrapped up here in a person. And in order to understand the faith, you must know the person. And it affects, it affects your outlook. It affects your perspective. We cannot separate the person from the mindset. Our worldview is shaped by the persons we fellowship with. It's as simple as that. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupts good manners. We read over there uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 20, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. It matters who you fellowship with. It matters who you follow. It matters who you read after. Hey, this morning we were talking to the singles and I was telling them that it's important that we have, a, that we have a, uh, some goals in our life. That we have a destination to arrive to. But then you need some, you're going to have to have a few things. You need some direction. You need some determination. You need some diligence if you're going to ever arrive there. But here's the problem. I told them you have to set some things and put some things in concrete. Create, put them on paper. Put them in a place where you can check off what you're accomplishing as you're trying to arrive at your destination so that you can forever, you know, kind of check yourself and make sure you're not off course and make sure you're accomplishing and finishing the, the run, the races that you intended to. Here's the thing, though. 
I told him, you'll go ahead, get some good godly books and some, some uh, 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 you know, uh, devotionals and things like that. But listen, I told him, be very careful. Don't you be reading after people that aren't King James. Don't you be reading after people that aren't fundamental. Don't read after people that aren't going in the direction that you're going. Because ultimately you become who you read and who you're influenced by. Yes, amen. So he says, oh, I listen to so-and-so on the radio or watch them on television. That's who you will be like then. You show me, you go ahead, you, I'll take a teenager. You show me their friends, I'll show you who they'll be a year later. Parents say, well, i got to be careful. I don't want to push my children away. So I've been real careful, real careful about telling them they can't see certain people. Because as soon as you say no, they go and do it anyway. Okay, so don't say anything about it. Then you get to lay in bed at night for the next 10 or 20 years, regretting the fact that you didn't step up and at least try to do something about it. Okay, so you're trying to fail. At least you took some steps to try to protect and try to care for your kids. Man, at least you said, listen, that friend's not the kind of friend you need to be around. I don't want you calling them. I don't want you texting them. I don't want you with them. If I have to, I'll take your phone from you. If I have to, I'll take your computer away from you. But you're not going to be influenced by that person. I want nothing to do with them. And I don't want you to have anything to do with them right now. You don't need them in your life. They're not going to bring you up. They're going to totally tear you down. And with God's help, you want to be rising for the Lord. You want to be doing something for Jesus Christ. And I love you too much to watch you be senselessly destroyed by the friends that you have right now so i'm putting some some guardrails in your life i'm going ahead and put some some direction in your life i'm telling you that's not what i want for you and that's how it's going to be i'll do whatever i want guess what that was the wrong answer friend people say you can't be like that anymore you can't do stuff like that then you don't and you get what the world gets what society gets let me tell you something the bible tells me i have some authority God gave them and entrusted those kids to me. I have a responsibility. As a matter of fact, if I don't do something, okay, I can't make them do anything, but I can certainly give them direction, and I can certainly say, this is where I draw the line. And you want to go out and do your own thing, you can go out and do your own thing. I can't keep you from it. But I know one thing. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord here. Faith is a perspective. And as believers, our fellowship should be first and foremost with Christ. Because that's where we gain the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you don't have the mind of Christ, if you don't think about the moral issues of our culture, the political issues of our culture, if you don't consider the economical issues of our culture and have a biblical perspective, a God-centered perspective, it's because you haven't gotten the mind of Christ. You're still in the world, listening to the world, gleaning from the world, growing up like the world, and being the world. Someone says, I don't like it. Tough. Read the Bible and figure it out. I'm telling you, God has something better for you than what they have. He didn't save you out of that world so that you could continue to waller about in the muck and the mire. He saved you out of that world so you can be victorious and you can accomplish something on His behalf. In spirits, the joy and the peace that cometh from Christ alone. We want Christ in the world too often though. But faith, if we're talking about faith, it is a person. And it is a perspective based on that person, the Word of God. You say, where's the faith found? In this book. God told me to do this, and God told me to do this, and God told me to do this, and God told me to do this. Here it is. Show me. I'm tired of hearing people tell me, God told 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 me. It's just a broken record, folks. And yet it doesn't even align itself with the principles and the priorities of the Word of God. 
show me where it says that's what you ought to be doing. You say, well, God, the Spirit spoke to me. The Spirit will never say anything other than what the Word of God says. That's what He tells us. So, boy, we're not sending you off to preach at any conferences anytime soon. <laughs> Faith finally is a practice. It's a practice. So we see it's a person and it's a perspective, but ultimately it's a practice. And it's a wonderful practice, too. James chapter 1, verse 22. Turn there, if you would, please. Hey, uh, brother, can you go over there to the light switch real quick? I want you to look. What, 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 what is that right there? It's light, isn't it? Turn those off. Both of them, all of them. What would we call that? Okay, go ahead and put them back on. Do you know that as believers, in most cases, in a number of cases, we don't see the world that way anymore? Light and darkness. It's a reality. We want to believe everything's in the middle somewhere. We want to convince ourselves that there is no real light and darkness. That there can be a middle ground. God's word is very clear. There is light and there is darkness. And that's it. That's the perspective that we need. Anything we say, anything we do, anywhere we go, all of that ought to be gauged by based on the word of God. Is it light? Darkness. Is it going to catapult me toward the Lord Jesus or is it going to hold me back from Christ? Is it drawing me to Him or is it pushing me away from Him? Is it drawing me to the light or is it taking me toward the darkness? Everything. Our music, our, our viewing, our listening, everything we do, everywhere we go, the people we hang around, is it toward the light or is it directing me toward darkness? Will I end up in the light closer to and drawing nigh to or will I end up closer to darkness than I am right now? Everything. Perspective. Perspective. Well, you know, there's a lot of gray in the Bible. Okay. Gray in the Bible? Well, there's so many issues. I mean, it's kind of like you have your ideas and I have mine. And you have your likes and dislikes, I have mine. And it's just gray. Okay. You really believe that? See what I mean about perspective? Let me ask you, if we brought Jesus down here today and we could say, how much of the Bible is gray and it's left up to us to determine what you want for us, where you want us to go, how you want us to live, what you want us to do? How much of that book was given to us and how much of it's gray versus how much of it's light, how much of it's darkness? He'd say, listen, this book's all light. You want to, follow, you want to draw nigh the light? You've got to get into this. Anything else but this is not truth. Anything else but this is darkness. What does that say about where we're at today? When really, in reality, we are trying to attach Christianity and the faith to everything. Well, we've got, we got, you know, rock stars. And we've got, and I say rock stars, I'm talking about people that sing songs and all that stuff. Talking about country western stars. We've got all these people. Always like to bring the light into the darkness. Try to incorporate it. Well, thank God for allowing me to be a drunkard. To have... Committed adultery on my wife and family. 
to be living right now with someone other than my spouse. Two, for taking drugs and alcohol and giving me the ability now to sing these glorious songs for you. And they don't honor my God, but I'll give him glory for it anyway. See, they're trying to take the darkness and they want to try to insert a little bit of light there. Make it a little more appealing to some others like us. They shouldn't have nothing to do with that. That is darkness. Someone says, that's closed-minded. Have you ever read the Bible? I'm going to talk about somebody who's a little closed-minded about sin. I think God is a good, good, good gauge of that. Be careful with it. Now, watch. Faith is a practice. James 1.22. Are you there? This is interesting. We're going to close with this, this particular idea. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's say those last four words together. Deceiving your own selves. Okay, be doers of the word and not hearers only. What? Deceiving your own selves. Wow. The Bible clearly warns us to carefully examine our practice then. The practice is part of the faith, but it's, it's that tangible part. We have Christ, and then he outlines for us the perspective that we ought to have, and then he makes sure that that perspective moves us toward the proper practice. But notice again, doers of the word, not hearers only. Faith is a practice. It's not just hearing. It's not just gleaning. It's not just supposedly growing in knowledge. It is a practice. It's a doing of the faith. The concern is that we may be deceiving our own selves. Deceiving ourselves concerning what then? The faith. The faith. In John, John chapter 15, verse 10, the Bible says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Wait a second. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Hmm. That's interesting. I think if I'm not mistaken, there's a verse right there in that same vicinity, and I meant to probably put it down here. If you love me, keep my commandments. Anybody, if I, if I, if I polled everybody in the room and I said, what are the commandments of God? You, you know what? You, you'd probably limit them, but at least you'd go to at least commandments and you'd say, the Ten Commandments. Do you know that every one of the Ten Commandments was restated in the New Testament with the exception of keeping the Sabbath? People say, that, that, those commandments are Old Testament. We have grace today. We don't have to abide by them. You know, those are moral laws. Do you know that God's moral law has not been decayed, nor has it departed? Amen. God still expects us to live clean and morally right. right. He still says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Faith is a practice. Hold on. We're still talking about this idea here real quick, though. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves, deceiving ourselves concerning the faith. The Bible says if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If you love my commandments, you'll abide in my love. He also says in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, they follow me. They follow me. Let me ask you, are you deceiving yourself? You say, oh, I'm in the faith. I got the faith. You, you got Christ. You know, without a doubt, you have Christ. Well, then you ought to have the perspective of Christ as you move forward in your walk with the Lord. You ought to be growing in grace. You ought to be growing in the mind of Christ. And secondly, you ought to be doing the right things then. If you don't have any 
outward evidence of salvation in your life. Maybe, maybe you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer deceiving your own self. Is that possible? So the Bible teaches. Oh, I know we're not big about doing in the culture that we live in. We're all about, you know, who we think we are. I'm the greatest this. I'm the greatest that. I'm really good at this and I'm really good at that. Really? Well, prove it. I love that. Teenagers are the best at that. I'm so good at football. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. I can run like the wind. I can catch anything. And you get them out there and you start playing football with them. And even if you're my age, you're smacking them down. You're whooping on them all over the place. And you're going, what? Guys, oh man, you, I can... I'll, put, I'll bust the move on you. I'll bust the move. And I'm like, really? Okay. You know what I used to do for years? For years I did this. I haven't done it lately. And I, I could do it lately if I could just get this old back of mine going a little bit better. But age is starting to cre- cre- creep in on me a little bit. But let me tell you this. I used to go to people all the time when I was out door knocking. If I found a young man in his, you know, 14 to 20 or so, I'd say, I'll tell you what, you like ball? Yeah, I love basketball. I'm good at it. I'm really good at it. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If, and I'd go visit these guys two and three, four times, five times. And then I'd say, I'll tell you, I'll make a deal with you. If, if we'll go down to the park. If I beat you at basketball, you have to go to church. If you beat me, I'll never visit you again. And I'd say, now, Lord, you know that that can't happen, so you've got to give me grace. <laughs> and not a bunch of times did they take me up, but a few times that's happened. And I've won every time. I, I, God give me grace, I had hops. Now, without that, I didn't have nothing. I'm jumping about an inch and a half, two inches, you know. It just seemed like he guided the ball through the hoops. I'd be falling down, throwing it behind my back, it'd go in. You know, that kind of thing. God was all over that, you know what I mean? But isn't it funny how people in their own mind, they're legends. As, as years ago, there was a, uh, uh, you know, well, I don't even want to tell you who it was. But he said, a legend in your own mind. We're legends in our own mind. Are we not? So often. The Lord says, let's bring it down where the rubber meets the road. I don't care how spiritual you think you are. doesn't matter to me how godly you think yourself to be. doesn't matter how good of a person you believe yourself to be. The fact is, if you're only hearing the word and not doing it, you're deceiving your own selves. You're nothing like that. You're really nothing that you think you are. You're deceiving your own self. And I want to make sure, listen, today, maybe, maybe you're not, maybe you think you're saved. Maybe there's been a time in your life where you said, you know what, I've grown up in the church. I believe in God and I, I trust in the Lord and, and I've done all those things. Man, from the time I was just as long as I can remember, I've been saved. I'm sure I've been on my way to heaven. I'm sure. I, I, I mean, I've, I've never remembered not being religious. I've never remembered not going to church. I've never remembered the faith is a person. It's not a set of rules and regulations, although rules and regulations play a factor in our, our walk, but it certainly has nothing to do with our faith in that sense. You have to have Christ. And you say, you know, well, what should I do about it? You need to get saved. You need to trust Christ. You need to be born again. And then God will fill you with the mind of Christ and give you the opportunity to understand the Word of God so you can have His perspective on things. And with His perspective, you can begin to practice things as God would have you practice them. But too often there's a break somewhere. One, either we're not saved. We go along trying to act like we're saved because we just assume we are. And then if we are saved and we're not doers, we're just hearers, we assume that we know what we're doing. We assume because we've been in church so long that we've got all the answers. But really our perspective's off because we don't have the mind of Christ because we don't spend enough time knowing Him. 
And what we're doing, we just assume is correct because since we have the wrong perspective, we have the wrong practice. And we, we, we're right. Everybody else is wrong. They're a bunch of legalists. I mean, they're trying to tell me I have to live a separated holy life. I don't see it their way. I don't understand it that way. I don't get it. That's called bad perspective. Unbiblical perspective. But once you get the right person, the right perspective, you know what's natural? The right practice. And that's what God wants for all of us. That's the faith. A person, a perspective, and a practice. You can't separate them. They're all part of one. It's called the faith. We're to contend for that. That's why we have church here. That's, that's why we're, we're trying to renovate that building and get into that building because we want to expand the influence that Christ has in our culture and in our community. We want a place where our children can worship, where they can also hear the Word of God, where they can lift up the songs of Zion, where they too can accomplish and be a part of what we have been a part of and have seen God do. It's quickly going by the wayside. And God help us. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common faith, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. Watch it. Here it is. It was once delivered. I don't have to get it over and over again. It's been delivered. I just have to contend for it now. I just have to do the best I can to preserve it. I just have to keep it out there. I just got to keep thanking the person, maintaining the perspective, and following through with the practice. It's already been given. I just have to perform. I just have to do it now. And that's all that you're required to do now. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Elements of the faith. A person. A perspective. A practice. How you doing with those? I pray that none of us are deceived today. Deceiving our own selves. Not being deceived by others. Deceiving our own selves, it says. By being simply hearers and not doers. Father, we love you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership. Today in our midst, there may be one or two or a number of them, a number of folks, that souls that have not trusted you, received you, accepted you as their Lord and Savior. God, right